Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Witt, and this is Margins. Today, criminologist Dr. Amber Beckley joins us again to continue our previous discussions and to branch off into some other interesting topics. Amber, thank you for joining us again uh, here at Margins. Uh, It's great to have you back. It's really good to be able to continue our conversation where we were talking about so many different things in relation to the field of criminology, in relation to uh, things that really happen with people who are doing social science research in in their own careers as well as in, in really asking the right questions when it comes to uh, communities. When we take a look at the United States of America and, and we think about issues of crime, uh, automatically, in many cases, a, a lot of the same ills that plague us politically, that plague us in our entertainment, when we start thinking of ideas of race and racism, they kind of play in when we start to talk about crime, particularly when we talk about the justice system. And one of the things that ends up happening is people sometimes choose to or sometimes involuntarily overlook the roots of inequality in the United States of America. They overlook the fact that the the country was founded on exclusion, exclusion of people along lines of race and gender and so many other things. So from the perspective of a criminologist and looking at this heterogeneous society, how do we exactly at least think about moving forward where we have a more realistic perspective and we don't automatically ascribe, you know, negative racial connotations uh, when we start to look at, at crime in the U.S.? Yeah. So as you may know, um, every non-white race is overrepresented in crime in the United States, meaning that um, Hispanics and African-Americans proportionally commit more crime than whites. So how do we take that information and then understand it as not a matter of um, something inherent about being African-American? And I think you're right that we have to Think about all of the things that have gone into what makes being black in America mean being black in America, and that is this history of um, slavery, uh, segregation, everything that has led to all of these other negative statistics that we have on African Americans, that they are not completing college at the same rates. They're not even completing high school at the same rates. Um, that they are um, not working in as high of SES jobs. All of these things um, are part of this legacy of inequality and slavery. And that gets all wrapped up into this effect of that we see as a race effect. I mean, I think that... When we think about the sometimes the circumstances, the ways in which systems are set up, that we really need to recognize the ways in which people based on differences in their identity may interface with a, with a system where we have systems that in many cases are going to give opportunities and support to some people and other people is going to be more like they're looked at under a magnifying glass. I, I remember attending your, your lecture recently where you talked about this idea that people end up kind of committing crimes or at least doing bad things 
as young people that you reach those preteen and those teen years where people are going to want to maybe steal a piece of candy. They're going to want to break a rule here or there. But if you're in different environments, you have different options. And a lot of times you have different consequences. And particularly if you're a person of a different identity in a different environment. Uh, er earlier, you talked about the idea of there being higher rates of crime being committed, let's say, uh, among blacks or among Latinos. Uh, I would want to at least put forth the notion that within those statistics, that the statistics can also be skewed because we have law enforcement a lot of times and a criminal justice system that's looking for uh, people of color committing crimes and has given second, third and fourth chances to people who may find themselves being white and upper middle class uh, here in the United States. So the crime could be committed. And I don't obviously I don't know the exact numbers, but a lot of times we see people who maybe are you have two groups of kids. One group of kids is a group of kids of color. Another group of kids is a, a white group of kids with well-connected parents. And both groups get caught smoking marijuana. Well, which one is going to show up in the statistics as breaking the law of smoking marijuana if one is given a pat on the wrist and they say, oh, don't do it again, and another is getting charges? So, I mean, how do you kind of approach that reality? So you're absolutely right about these statistics, that this overrepresentation we're seeing is in the criminal justice system. That does not in necessarily indicate that there are different rates of undetected offending. In fact, Research shows that most teenagers, regardless of their background, are committing crime as, as teens. Uh, in fact, it's rare to find a teenager who has not committed a crime. So what does that mean? Just like you said, the teenagers who are smoking weed in the suburbs are probably doing it maybe in a house, a big house, and if they get caught, they're getting caught by their parents. The teenagers who are smoking weed in the inner city in a housing project, yeah, maybe they're doing it inside, but maybe there isn't really an inside to do it in, and so they're doing it outside. And there they're more visible. They're more likely to get caught. That's just basic, you know, basic logic of one person's more visible, the other isn't. And then there is the whole aspect of there's the chance that the – Children who are in the suburbs and have these families that are perhaps more well-off, you know, we've seen evidence of this in in cases in court where a defendant who is coming from a high-class background, the judge says, well, I'm not going to sentence you to any kind of harsh sentence because I think you're going to go off to college and I don't want to ruin that for you. Whereas the person who is in, comes from maybe a worse background gets exactly the opposite. Clearly, you're not headed anywhere good, so I'm going to sentence you to you know, jail or probation so that um, you don't continue to commit crime. And I mean, we end up having a lot of times the, these notions that end up being in our minds in terms of when we think of, you know, a criminal teen, the pictures painted here in the United States of this teenager of color from a certain part of town with a certain type of dress. And if we say, you know, homecoming king and queen 
off to do amazing things in the world is pictures that are painted and they're of a certain race and a certain uh, background, all of those things. And sometimes things start to get kind of mixed up. Uh, we find in the criminal justice system, particularly when it comes to the way that young people are handled by law enforcement officers, prosecutors, and even seen by judges and juries, because sometimes you ascribe some of those more positive factors or affluent factors to, let's say, a someone who's accused of a crime and they happen to be white and maybe they could be from a terrible situation in a terrible community, but it's a benefit of a doubt based on the perceptions that we have in the United States of what it means to be a white teen versus times where you have, let's say a young black teen or a young Latino teen with both parents who are college educated. They're coming from a middle-class background, but sometimes those negative aspersions are then applied to them, the negative aspersions of poverty and all of those things. So we end up having, it's almost like this messy gumbo of all these different ingredients that, that are floating together that if we don't really sit down and have hard conversations about how we make policies, how we enforce laws, the ways in which we talk about these things and portray these issues in our media here in the United States where we have a diverse population, then we're going to continue perpetuating these issues for generations. Uh, would you agree or disagree with that? I I agree with you. I think, too, I mean, what you're what you're talking about is just the the general racism that people may face in a job market. It's you find it in the criminal justice system, right? It's just the the carryover of that, that yeah, all of these characteristics that um, you see in someone who is of a certain skin color or a certain ethnicity, what happens is is that they they haven't those things occur in the criminal justice system. So at a job interview, the you know the African American candidate comes in and immediately the employer sees well. You probably have a kid that you need to take care of and, uh, you know, maybe you're a single parent and maybe you've got family problems. And I so immediately maybe you're not the best job candidate. The same thing happens in a courtroom, even though neither of those things may be true um, for for that particular job candidate or defendant. Maybe that defendant came from a, you know, wealthy parents or had a high SES background. It's they they could be perfectly capable of succeeding in life. But yeah, a judge and a jury might not see that. And a lot of times, you know, the, the consequences of, you know, the, the small slights or the small misperceptions that seem small for some people can end up being big. Like you said, if I, I think about the fact we will have faculty meetings and they'll talk about, hey, make sure you stop by X, Y, Z, whatever the office is going to be, and they, to pick up your first generation T-shirts. And everybody in the meeting turns and looks to me. And I'm just like, I'm sorry I'm not picking up a first generation T-shirt because I'm third generation college. And it's like... <gasps> The black man is third generation college. <laughs> and for me, you know, it's a funny little story. It's something to think about. But if that same line of thought plays into the eyes of a jury or a judge in a different situation, as opposed to just, oh, I have a story to tell now. So, like, oh, my story to tell is that I got extra years on my sentence or I got a sentence based on 
preconceived notions uh, revolving around my identity. So we really do have to take some of those things very seriously because the consequences can be so high. When, when we think about the United States, we're talking about, you know, this diverse country with lots of uh, baggage. When we look at a place like Sweden, and, and it doesn't have to just be a European country like Sweden. I mean, we have countries, you know, we could say Ghana, we could say Jamaica, wherever we're going to go, where we have people, where you have more of a homogeneous uh, population. One of the things that in conversations we've had is that, you know, as a criminologist, you've told me that you've seen that, no, there's patterns based on basically just human interaction and, and human psyche that in homogeneous populations, you see that some people are going to commit crimes, some people not. So then it really does away with the notion of uh, just ascribing it to a particular racial or ethnic group. How, how have you kind of working in two different countries? How does that help you to see that a little clear? Yeah, you're absolutely right that this this idea that there is going to be a group that is identifiable by certain characteristics that is overrepresented in crime is found everywhere around the world. It's not just in the United States. It's not just in Sweden. It's in Germany. It's in New Zealand. It's in England. And what that characteristic could be might be it's, – it's often drawn around ethnic lines or racial lines. But of course in some places the ethnic line is they're Polish and we're German where you and I – couldn't tell a difference. In fact, probably most people in Germany couldn't tell a difference. Um, or the lines are, you know, maybe that, uh, I mean, that someone could be uh, Finnish and another person could be Swedish Finnish. And there, there are these lines that maybe aren't visible, but that we find patterns of crime being drawn around these lines. And it's not just patterns of crime, of course. It's everything that tends to go with it. So it's um, maybe working in worse jobs, getting lower education. We find these sort of marginalization patterns across the world. And, yeah, it's not just an American problem. It's an American problem with regard to race, but it's not an exclusively American phenomenon. And, I mean, you bring up the, the whole idea of marginalization, that – when people are marginalized and they're really working for something better for for their children and their children's children, but they happen to be in a group, whatever that group's going to be, a religious group, an ethnic group, a, a racial group within a particular country, and they continue generation after generation to be marginalized in different ways, does that have impacts on those successive generations in terms of the ways in which they interact with the society as a whole. So what we've seen is that surprisingly the if it's if it's an immigrant situation that usually the first generation immigrants that come they are you know they've migrated to their landing country with an idea that they are going to try to make a better life for their children and they probably expect to struggle. And they probably do relatively better in this this new country than they would have in the old country. And by that, I mean they probably are making more money. Um, perhaps they have more opportunities. They certainly most likely have more opportunities. However, within the country that they've landed in, they are at the bottom of the ladder. 
they are making more money according to uh, the country that they came from, but they are at the lowest part of the socioeconomic scale in the country that they've arrived in. So what happens is when they have children or if their children migrate with them at a very young age when the children are young, the children grow up not being in a high class. The children are in a low class of this new country. Yes, if the children were to take all of these resources and go back to their parents' country, they would have probably an amazing life. But they end up being marginalized in their, this new country. And we found that it's not immigrants who commit more crime, but actually the children of immigrants. And again, this, this seems to be a fairly consistent pattern, that it's not the immigrants that are that are that are the issue. It is the children who are growing up in these societies where they are pushed to the margins. And those are the children that end up uh, committing crime, end up not doing well in school, end up not getting jobs. When we talk about individuals who are pushed to the margins, you know, due to uh, various elements of their identity, and and this is something that that occurs in, in countries around the world, we're really talking about environment. We're talking about societal factors. We're talking about situations in which people find themselves in the body they were born into uh, in terms of the way it looks, the country they were born in, into all of those things, the family they were born into. But one of the most fascinating things that I see in the work that you do is, is the times that you've explained to me the ways in which you all have started to look into genetics and the fact that you could have someone who's born into privilege and someone else who's born into marginalization, but they have pretty similar genetics in terms of the ways in which they are kind of compelled to do certain things, be it crime or anything else, but then they have these different consequences. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So right now, I mean, the research isn't there to show those types of effects yet. Um, but what we do know is that there are some indications that um, crime and uh, many other behaviors that we can find actual sort of sequences across the gene that are related to those types of outcomes. And what that means is and, – and we found this actually in, um, you know – single race groups. So this isn't that we find genes that are related to the outcome and they happen to be, uh, you know, the genes that are associated with being marginalized. That's not the case at all. Um, we find that uh, these these genes seem to work in, in, you know, mostly Caucasian groups. So what this means is that if there is this sort of genetic propensity to perhaps commit crime or to have wind up with a fewer number of years of education. Ideally, what we can look at next is whether or not someone with those same basically genetic propensity to have these bad later life outcomes could have different outcomes depending on their environment. So as you mentioned, um, are two people who have the same genetic propensity going to wind up committing crime, for example, if one of them is raised in a penthouse in Manhattan and if the other one is raised in, you know, a project, a housing project? And 
we don't have the answer for that yet, but I think we do know enough about environment to say that they're probably going to have different outcomes because while genes matter, they are certainly important. What we can get at better by looking at genes is the effective environment. So while people in the United States see race and crime as synonymous, they think they're the same thing. What we can actually do is we can say, no, that's not true, that we can find propensity to commit crime, genetic propensity to commit crime across all races. And where things go differently is what's happening to black families in America versus what's happening to white families in America. And it feels like that is yet another way for us to hold a mirror up to our society, you know, on on the long, the long path of history that a lot of times we want everything to be on a case by case basis. We want everything to be about, well, you made, you know, these particular choices and we're not even going to discuss what we have going on as a society, how we're setting people up to either do well or to, to basically, you know, almost be a guinea pig for the newest punishment that we're going to come up with. And of course, you know, there's always going to be people that say, well, what about personal responsibility? I mean, of course, if that's something that is important and people do have to take responsibility for themselves, but it just feels very irresponsible not to use all the tools at our disposal, be it that work uh, from the genetic side, be it, you know, how we look at policies, the implementation, implementation of policies and, and just the society that we're in that we're being irresponsible if we don't use all those tools to really figure out how to create a better path for successive generations. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're, I think, I think you bring up a really important point that there are some people that we can see the, that society is failing them or is failing them. I, I was recently, um, uh, involved in a, in a, um, murder case in the state of North Carolina that involved a child who, um, was one of 11 siblings born to a drug using mother who, um, had severe cognitive difficulties. I think the child was found eating feces in his backyard as a child. And, the child never went to social – never got placed in foster care because people were concerned about putting all 11 kids in different places. And pretty much he he was sort of consistently failed. He never got help in school. He never got um, treatment for any of his health or um, cognitive issues. And, you know, given all that, I it's not really surprising that he ended up where he did on his way to prison. And – yeah, we have to think about that and think about what we're doing in society to try to alleviate people with the problems among people with these types of issues in their lives. I mean, I, I really think that more thought needs to go into what we're dealing with when it comes to really looking at each individual in the United States, not only as fellow Americans, but just as humans. That, you know, far too often it's easy. We, we take the easy route and we just say, well, those are others, you know, for whatever reason, you know, it could be along more defined lines, but we find some kind of way to say that person's different. And then we're able to cast them aside. And until we're able to actually embrace that, no, each and every person we're dealing with is yet another person, another brother, another sister. 
we're not going to do the hard work, the heavy lifting of really changing structures. Well, and I think we do that as a protective mechanism, right? If we can say these people are different, then we know that we're not going to be like that. If we can say this person made a series of bad choices and that's how they ended up in their position, then we know that we're not going to be like that. If we can say, well, you know, this person was not doing the things they should have and they ended up never getting a job. Well, that's not me. I I did the right thing and it's all it's all on me and that's never going to happen to me. I think some of that is starting to change in some realms of society. You know, um as as more and more people start coming out of the closet, for example, we can start to see like wait a second, I do know people who are like that. Maybe I don't need to be homophobic. Um and you know, hopefully that type of situation can spread. I mean, there are more and more mixed race families coming about that I think that, you know, maybe wasn't expected a long time ago. And I mean, lastly, I I really think that people use this as a mechanism to protect their privilege. If you're not willing to look at the structural issues that may have made things not work too well, for that child that you were talking about who now finds themselves as a young adult en route to prison, then it's easier to overlook the ways in which, for whatever reason, you had privileges. If you have parents who were able to help you through your educational process, if you grew up in a neighborhood that was supportive, if you find yourself at a point of privilege due to your gender, due to your religion, whatever it's going to be, it's a lot easier to overlook that, deny it, act like it doesn't exist if you don't look at the flip side of the coin. Right. If you say, well, you know what? There's no systems in place that help me. Just like there's no systems in place that made things rougher for that other person, they need to get it together. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this is the, the typical um, you know, white male thing that I, I succeeded all on my own. And it's like, sure, you did. I uh, Just another anecdote. My husband is a medical doctor. He's a big, tall Swedish man. So he's white. And he is a resident at a hospital. And he has a number of times been in a room as a resident who is a person who's receiving training with female female and minority physicians, the attendings, the people in charge. The patients automatically look at him. And they, they, they're like, well, doctor, you know, how, what should I do? Or, you know, how can you help me? And, you know, my husband's sitting here kind of trying to point and say, I'm, you know, that person's in charge. He's very cognizant of the privileges that he gets just for being a big, tall, white guy. And, you know, I don't know how many people actually step back and realize that. And that's, um, you know, that is problematic. And I'm sure for his colleagues, that's not the first, only, or last time that that happens. And that type of thing can really eat away at them where, you know, they've accomplished a a certain level of stature and, and doing the work that they do. But people overlook it because of the way that they look. So, I mean, we see this is like full circle that we see a lot of the things that that mess up our perceptions of crime are the same things that that mess up our perceptions in everyday interactions and and really can have some dire consequences. Well, I think that, you know, you and I, we could talk for days upon days about so many different things, 
But uh, I, I just want to thank you once again for coming back and engaging in another conversation. I want to wish you the best in all of the things that you're doing, both here in the U.S. as well as uh, going off to Sweden for, for yet another stint over there. So thank you once again, Dr. Amber Beckley. And uh, I appreciate you being here. Well, thanks again for having me. I'd like to thank Dr. Amber Beckley for joining us once again. I'd like to thank Lacey Scarmana, our producer. And I'd like to thank all of the listeners of WVIK for helping us bring this episode of Margins. Be sure to look out for our next episode of Margins, which will be our final episode of Margins, where we'll talk about the journey that we've taken through producing all of these great conversations. 